With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are former Southern District Prosecutor, Oklahoma City Bombing Prosecutor, uh, Eitan Goldman, and author and Emmy Award winning broadcast news correspondent, Luke Russert. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Hold On Bags, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsor. It really helps make this podcast happen. So please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, uh, the verdict came down in the Trump E.J. Uh, e. Jean Carroll case. Uh, he was um, found by, in a civil action. He was found guilty of sexual um, uh, abuse, sexual assault. He had to pay a $5 million uh, defamation fine. That's a lot of dough. Uh, his lawyer said, well, he wasn't convicted of rape. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just... I. I marvel at that disingenuousness. Um, the jury was quite convinced that he sexually assaulted this woman in a Bergdorf Goodman uh, dressing room, and then he defamed her. And, you know, they couldn't reach a consensus convincingly on whether he penetrated. Uh, you, you know, I'm sorry. This is, a, this is a terrible decision for him. And three cheers for... Ms. Carroll for pursuing this under what I'm sure was really, really trying circumstances. And James, I don't have any idea what the political fallout would be with this guy. I gave up trying to gauge that years ago. But I am aghast at some of his defenders. After the verdict, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio of Florida said, this case was a joke. I have one question for Senator Rubio. Do you tell your daughters, Danielle and Amanda, that sexual abuse is a joke? So, James, I don't know. Where do you think it's going to go? So, a, a couple things. I was out of pocket a good bit yesterday. It, it's, how, how long was that jury out? I mean, they three couldn't hours. have been out. Three hours. Three hours. Yep. I, I mean, that, well, that tells you everything. The other thing that was kind of interesting is there were six males on the jury, three females. Uh, but, you know, in, in how much does it hurt him? You know, uh, so far... Nothing has happened. And I, as having uh, dinner in Los Angeles with dear friend of this show, and I think one of the smartest political commentators ever is Ron Brownstein. And he said that there's something he, we talked about, and it's called punctuated equilibrium. Now, that's a fancy Ron Brownstein phrase. It, it was a, in evolutionary biology that things just sort of happen for a long period of time, and then there's dramatic change. 
and we just have watched Trump's numbers stay about the same. If anything, at the, the, the indictment, you know, helped him a little bit among Republicans. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if, if it's going to happen, but it would not be unusual if one day he just had a, I don't know, collapse is a word, but significant, significant deterioration. And there's some, and we'll talk to uh, our guest today, but there, there's so many other balls in the air. Uh, in, th- th- this is going to cause, it, it just has to cause some damage, some weakening, you know, maybe it's be imperceptible, but there's so much more coming. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 like I said, you've always been of the view that he won't run, that there's too much out there. I was, then I wasn't. Now, I'm, every day I get closer to your view that it's, it's just too much, too much going on. Well, um, James, uh, this is an imperfect parallel, but I do remember 1973 and early 74 with Richard Nixon, and it, it really took an accumulation uh, what was that equilibrium that we uh, that Ron was talking about? <laughs> I got um, Go ahead. And I'll get to it. It's called punctuated equilibrium. Well, there uh, may have been that, and it was uh, Stephen Jay Gould in Niles Elridge. The theory p- proposed that most evolution is characterized by long periods of evolutionary stability, infrequently punctuated by swift periods of branching. Sp- Speciation, I guess, S P C I A species. I don't know what to, I think I'm pronouncing it right. But at any rate, the, the theory being that things just happen at a thing, and then, but all of a sudden one day you have punctuated equilibrium, and that's the new big word for the Well, show. that's what that's happened with Nixon. It took a while, but then his equilibrium was punctuated. Now, whether, <laughs> that's, equilibrium. whether that's analogous or not, I, we, we don't see. know. But, but we're, I, we're on the punctuated equilibrium watch here. Yeah, and if this case. I don't know how much it's going to hurt him, but if it helps him, there's something terribly wrong about us. It can't possibly help him. He was guilty. He sexually abused a woman and he defamed her. There's no getting around that. Um, James, let me turn to another subject, and I want to start with you on an ABC Washington Post poll last weekend that just ricocheted around the body politic. Your take. Well, there is considerable... And, and I would say justifiable criticism of some of the methodology in that poll, particularly uh, the way that they asked the trial heat. And uh, the, the headline, and people talk about it, and I saw there was a YouGov something poll showed, you know, Biden ahead of Trump, and the White House is obviously telling people it's an outlier poll, it, 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 not a very good poll, and the, the, the trial heat numbers fall. I, I, I would say that I think I think the trial heat number is flawed. I think I just don't think that's where it is. But the problem is this is part of a long string of polls and 2022 election results. And I'm, I, and I'm, I can't argue that this is justified, but it's a fact. His black approval is around 60 percent. We had terrible black turnout in 2022. That's going to tell you that we're not going to get black turnout anywhere where we need it in 2024 with Biden. The other thing that that we see over a long period of time, his youth approval is not very good. Well, there's two secrets. If, if 
if the, in a presidential election, if the Democrats don't have a, a, a really good black turnout number or a, a, a really good under 30 turnout number, if they underperform, it's the, the, the most underappreciated rule. Everything has to add up to 100. So, so let's just say the expected under 30 number is 15, 15% of the vote, 15 share out of 100. If it drops to 13, you say, well, that's going to cost you two points. No, it's going to cost you more than that because if it drops, if it's expected 15 and let's just say non-college white males are expected 30, well, if it drops from 15 to 13, that might go from 30 to 31. And it's a very, 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 very significant problem is democratic enthusiasm. I, I, and that makes that case, as did the uh, NBC hard poll, as did the Pew poll, as every other poll that I've seen. And I've seen the election results. I'm, I'm very confident that that's the big, big issue here. Yeah, I agree. Let me go back to the poll, because I, too, am very skeptical of the head-to-head that showed Trump seven points ahead. I just don't think that's the case. Uh, and I think uh, it, was, it was not a well-done poll. But some of the criticism is just from people who don't understand polling. One is the sample size they say was too small. Over 1,000 adults, 900 registered voters. I'm sorry. I directed over 300 polls over the course of, I don't know, a quarter century done by the very best in the business. Peter Hart, Bob Teeter, Ann Selzer. That's the size we usually used, almost always. Uh, and it was, and, and at this stage, you don't do likely voters. You know, we don't know. <laughs> People aren't sure if they're a likely voter. You do do adults and then a subsection of registered voters. And to wait for anything other than race, gender, geography, or education at this point is really unnecessary and maybe even irresponsible. So I don't have any problems with that kind of methodology. And I think building on your points, I would make two. Uh, and that is the other polls are, this is not an outlier in general. Uh, Biden's uh, approval rating may not be as low as 36. Okay, it's 40. That ain't much better. And most people, including a plurality of Democrats, simply don't want him to run again. And the White House can't run from that. I, I, I think you're analysis was on point, uh, sophisticated. I, I, I agree with it. I'd probably, one minor, and I'm, this is very minor, when you, but you're talking about waiting, which is very very controversial. Uh, age, you can, you, sometimes you have to wait for. You, you, I, no, I included uh, age, I think. I meant to, at least. I mean, gender, age, region, education. Your analysis was, 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 was accurate. It was sophisticated. And, and you're right, I you, I would question the 36 approval number. I would question a seven-point trial heat in favor of Trump. But that's a nobody does samples bigger than a thousand adults. Of, you know, wait, they had nine. Well, some of those online ones do. That's what they kept citing. I mean, you do an online six thousand, you don't get any you know, better result. Could, you get a worse result, no, probably. No, you don't. And and and. The, in online polls, I mean, they, they go into them, and I think they, they're getting better and better as, as they go. It's not a, you know, we could, we could talk about methodology in this, but, but the point is, the consistent point is democratic enthusiasm, black approval, youth approval are universally down. And that would, is going to produce a bad result. And it doesn't get any better. 
All right, so maybe we, we take our, our Ron Brownstein doctrine, which I forgot I forgot all already what it was. <laughs> tell, hey, tell Brownstein he, he, he just got to get down there level. I mean, we, we can't, he's too, he's too damn smart and sophisticated for us. Punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> all right, so, so let's talk about punctuated equilibrium. And, and uh, this is what the White House was saying. Look, Clinton didn't got credit the first two, two and a half years for the economic recovery, and but barred by 96, he's formidable force, won re-election easily. Uh, Obama, same thing, got no credit, got, got wiped out in 2010. Uh, we actually had much smaller majorities, it had much more successful off the election, and, you know, you look at even the inflation number today is showing some improvement, and it, you, 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 it's going to get better. And, you know, again, the, the hope is there's some version of punctuated equilibrium in the presence numbers. I, I understand everything they say is true, but I think it's un, unlikely to be the case. But it's demonstrably true that Clinton got wiped out two years in, so did Obama. It's demonstrably true by the time that they, you know, in the last year of their first term, uh, it, they had a, you know, substantial improvement in their, in, in their numbers. So, but I think, I don't think that's the case here, and I don't think I think the analogy is factual, but I don't think it's relevant. Agree, and we will undoubtedly return to to this uh, in the weeks ahead. James, our guest, is one of the foremost criminal lawyers uh, and a, a fabled prosecutor in the uh, Southern District uh, of New York. He was a prosecutor in the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, and now he's a leading uh, Washington lawyer, Aton Goldman. Aton, thanks for being with us. I'm going to start off by asking you about Donald Trump, guilty in the civil uh, case of sexual abuse and defamation, earlier indicted by the Manhattan DA, the Fulton County uh, DA gives every indication uh, of a charge is going to be forthcoming, while his own former Attorney General William Barr says Mar-a-Lago is the most serious, both for the offense and cover-up. That's before we even get to January 6th. Is there any connectivity, either legally, personally, or anyway, between all these cases? Um, I mean, the connectivity is is the obvious one. It's you know Donald Trump himself and his conduct that makes him subject to, you know, criminal exposure and, and civil liability. So, you know, there, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that he's facing this kind of constellation of, of, you know, legal troubles. It's the bed that he made. Yeah, it sure is. And, and I, I, I would guess obviously the case yesterday wasn't a criminal case, but, and we don't have any, any idea what's, what, what effect it's going to have on voters, but boy, it's not something most people would want to have uh, on their record. Uh. No, no, it's definitely not. And, um, you know, w- one issue here is just the, the, the difference between the political timetable and the legal timetable. And that's something that the former president has you know, used to his advantage for years, where he would, you know, sue to block 
uh, the, the Congress from getting documents or the courts from getting documents or litigants from getting documents. He'd lose, he'd appeal, he'd lose, he'd take a cert petition up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, the wheels of justice grind exceedingly slowly, but the political wheels grind more quickly. So, you know, we could have a situation in 2024 where if you, you know, believe the terrifying ABC poll from a couple days ago, um, Trump could actually get reelected while he's under indictment in, you know, three different jurisdictions. And in that case, you have a really unprecedented situation because, you know, the reason that Bob Mueller didn't uh, recommend indictment is because of the OLC memo, which says you can't indict a sitting president. But what it actually says is you can't indict or prosecute a sitting president. So he could, you know, actually at least delay his criminal day of reckoning if he, uh, you know, if he wins re-election. And this is something that is kind of not there in the OLC memo, because I think until now it was inconceivable that the American people would elect somebody who had, you know, been indicted for, for serious crimes. Yeah, you, you um, from your distance, I guess, at first I'd ask you, if you were Trump's lawyers, which one would worry you the most? But I also want to ask you about Trump's lawyers. He goes through lawyers faster than Henry VIII went through wives. I mean, he keeps replacing them. Uh, and uh, some of your colleagues I've talked to say none of them are the top-tier lawyers. There's no real blue-chip lawyer there. Is lawyering a problem for him, Aton? He has a really dizzying array of different lawyers. I mean, we are scheduled to take Mr. Trump's deposition in the uh, Strzok civil case, and it has been difficult kind of pinning down who represents him at, at what time. But, I mean, I think that there is a broad range of, of, you know, of talents on his legal team. And one of his lawyers in the, the uh, Alvin Bragg case is a guy named Todd Blanche, who is a friend of mine from the Southern District of New York and is a terrific lawyer and a, and a good guy. So uh, he may be an outlier, but there's, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of different lawyers and of really varying quality and also, I think, varying uh, ethical standards. Well, that's fitting for Donald Trump. Um, you know, any action, as you know, on Mar-a-Lago or January the 6th is going to ultimately have to be approved if there is a recommendation by the attorney general. You know Merrick Garland well. He chose you to prosecute uh, in Oklahoma City. Some um, hand-riggers say he's not tough enough uh, to make those kind of really difficult decisions. What's your take? I don't think he's going to be able to avoid making a decision. I mean, if Jack Smith comes to him and says, you know, we recommend that, that that Trump be indicted for these crimes, uh, you know, Merrick's going to have to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. And, you know, from from everything I've seen of Merrick, uh, he's a real, uh, you know, go where the the facts and law lead you. And I think at the end of the day, he will, you know, approve indicting the former president if that's what the the special counsel recommends. James, so counselor, uh, I've been not a subject to my knowledge. I've been a subject of a federal investigation, but I've been on a periphery, periphery of a, some friend of mine here in New Orleans, obviously, during the Clinton years. And the one thing you learn is they don't have to tell you shit. And, they're not, they're, you know, they, they operate on their own timetable. But, you know, you can kind of read tea leaves a little bit. And, and Jack Smith interviewed Mike Pence. Would that be 
the, the kind of thing that would signal you that this investigation is likely wrapping up one way or the other? I think it's, uh, I think that, I think there are other signs that this is a really uh, mature investigation. Um, you know, there, there's actually, I mean, Jack Smith actually has two kind of separate investigations going, right? He's got January 6th and the attempts to overturn the election, but then he's also got the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which, you know, is, is kind of more, well, it's, it involves conduct that is more recent um, and it's also more of kind of a headshot because it's a it's a you know much simpler case. Uh, you don't have to you know try to prove that when you know Trump was trying to get people to overturn the results of the election, he knew that you know the election was actually a democratic election and that what he was saying about fraud was was untrue. So the, the Mar-a-Lago. So for the record, I was a mediocre law student and in. in to the extent I was a less than mediocre lawyer. But but you, on your mind, you never can help when something as a criminal thing and you say, what's the defense? Because, I mean, I'm sure that you as a very experienced prosecutor and, and defense attorney, that's what you're going to look for. You know, I got these facts, what, you know, what's my defense? And for the life of me, and I've asked a lot of people, I'm asking you the same question, what's a non-laughable defense for the Mar-a-Lago documents? That's a tough one, James. I mean, <laughs> you know, Obviously, I don't think there really I, I, is. I've asked some heavy timber that question, and everybody's like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Here's the thing. The, what, what Trump's defense typically is, is a political or PR defense, which is they do it too, or everybody's corrupt, or look, there were documents in Pence's house and in Biden's basement and Hillary, and but – None of that is a legal defense. You can't right, go in. Right. I, I, I understand you've t- kind of taken the notes and, you know, you got to think, and, you know, it's boring. If, if, if they go to the Fulton County, I would say, look, he had no direct power over her. He didn't do anything to advance it. My God, there were 4 million votes. He thought there was 11,000. I mean, I don't know. It's a very good defense, but that would be off the top of my head. I, that's what I would argue. I guess, I guess for the, well... The thing about classified documents is it, you don't really need to prove uh, intent to violate the law. You don't need to prove that you knew that what you were doing was illegal, although here I think you definitely have that in terms of the you know, obstructive activity and the lies to the government. But you know, he, could, he could argue, I mean he has argued, you know, I have the – as president, I had absolute right to you know, declassify uh, anything I wanted at any time and I could even do it in my head. Right. And so I made a decision, which I didn't record anywhere or tell anybody, but I made a decision when I took this. By, by the very act of me taking classified documents out of the White House, I thereby declassified them. Now, as a matter of law, that's not true, but, you know, he could, he could make that argument, I guess. I, I, I guess, but they, even if the papers weren't classified, they didn't belong to him. So if you leave your law firm and you take your desk, well, no, well, I don't know what your situation is, your desk, or, you know, the artwork, but just say it belonged to the law firm. Well, you don't, you, you can't take it with you. And they came and they told him, you have this stuff. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the National Archives. And he still didn't give it back. Yeah. And then that's really, that, that that's what's going to be tough because the, the, the evidence of the, you know, him being told repeatedly, you can't do this. You can't take it. It's not yours. And then, and then the you know, videotape of him you know, personally kind of going through the boxes and deciding what he wanted to keep. I mean, this is just a, a, a clash between 
Donald Trump's belief that he should be able to, you know, keep whatever he wants and say whatever he wants and do whatever he wants and the actual law. Right. It's just like it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, if you could take, the, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware painting, I guess, and it, it doesn't belong to you. <laughs> Quite simply, right. it's not yours. And there's a, but anyway, that. But it, it uh, your, your general point, um, your takeaway here is this strikes you as a mature criminal investigation that Jack Smith is conducting. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it is in the end stages. And I think that you know it was a bad day for Donald Trump when when Jack Smith was appointed because he has been um, he has been much quicker and more aggressive than what it seemed like the department had been doing for, you know, the first couple of years after, after January 6th. Before I, I, I turn it back to Al, I gather you, you, you know Jack Smith? I don't. I've never met the guy. Never met. Okay. But you know his right, reputation. Al? I do, yeah. yeah. You know people. That know, I know a guy that knows the guy. <laughs> yeah. And his reputation, I think you're telling James me, he's a, he's a, he's a tough hombre. He's a good prosecutor. Yeah, no, he's got a great, a great reputation. He's supposed to be, you know, fearless and calls him as he sees him and uh, aggressive in the right way and in great judgment. I, I don't know, you know, I haven't heard anything bad about the guy, let me, except a, for from Trump. Aton, <laughs> let me ask you this: um, this in this New York and the E. Jane Carroll case, the judge not only had an anonymous jury, but he warned them or cautioned them afterwards to stay anonymous. Don't have you ever you've tried a lot of cases, I'm sure. Have you ever heard of a warning like that? Not exactly. I mean, I don't think the judge can force no. jurors to remain anonymous if they if they don't want to. I mean, if they want to go out and, you know, uh, identify themselves, there's nothing that Judge Kaplan can do. I think he was probably, you know, giving them uh, strongly worded advice because, you know, he had well-founded concerns about their their safety and you know the subject to harassment if um if they identify themselves but no i can't think of even even in anonymous juries i cannot think of a judge at the end of it saying keep your identity secret i, I don't know when that's happened before. someone told me even in mafia cases uh they haven't heard of that because the obvious implication is that you could be endangered because of trumpites if you will uh, and i mean that's that's rather frightening really but uh, let me let me move on to something else. You were an Oklahoma City prosecutor. There was a violent right wing back then driven by conspiracy theories, Waco and the like. Isn't it really much worse today? They spread this stuff on the Internet. They have prominent politicians feeding it. Is the violent right wing threat in America greater than it was, what was it, 27 years ago uh, in Oklahoma City? Yeah, no, I think it's it's immeasurably worse, uh, way way more dangerous. And you know, I think that for you know Tim McVeigh, he had to find his kind of community of uh, extremists and nut jobs by going to gun shows and talking to people and writing letters. But all you need is an internet connection in order to be able to you know find uh, some really dark places and to you know, engage in, I mean, and, and, and also I think the country is a much different place now. I don't think in, you know, 1995, you could have had a president, you know, tweeting conspiracy theories from the Oval Office. And we had that for four years. And now that same guy is, you know, the leading candidate for nomination of a major party. So um, the, the, just the division in the country and the polarization and the willingness of people to believe that their political uh, adversaries are 
not just people they disagree with, but part of a horrible cabal of, you know, child abusing um, monsters is 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 just categorically different. It's it's uh, it's really sad. Frightening. It's beyond sad. Yeah, it's really, it is frightening. It's, it's frightening. Let me ask you before I turn back to James. Let me ask you one another Trump question. You have you have been in a lot of cases. You've represented people on both sides, um, and I know Trump's not normal to put it mildly. But at some point, doesn't a a a, a doesn't this, doesn't stress weigh in on him? I mean, some emotional toll of maybe being indicted multiple times and convicted of sexual assault. Even someone as oblivious to normal human emotions as Trump. Wouldn't you expect that there there would be just some just gargantuan stress imposed upon him? You would definitely think so. I mean, the the process of being, uh, you know, a subject or a target or a suspect or a defendant in a criminal case, especially a serious criminal case, it takes a huge psychological toll. You know, most people don't enjoy it. And, you know, I don't know Trump personally, but from my perspective, the thing that he seems to fear and fear most and enjoy the least is just not getting attention. So if he's in the headlines, if people are talking to him like he matters, that may be more important to him than, you know, what's actually been being said. I mean, he may just have this fear of being, you know, irrelevant that Trump's, well, it's a coin of phrase that's more important than everything else. So, so, uh, counsel, I'm going to ask you like a, a, a polling question. I'm going to read you, I'm going to give you two statements and tell which one you agree with the most. Statement A, in the, the indictment of uh, Donald Trump by the Manhattan DA for making payments to a porn star that ordering his attorney to put it out there, not reported as a campaign, blah, blah, blah. It, but while it might be a technical violation of law, this is something that we shouldn't be prosecuted with. This is not that big a deal. Statement B, yeah, it actually is a big deal when you do something at the end of the campaign, you circumvent uh, federal elections law and have your lawyer do something else. Which is closer to your view? This is a you know, okay, but it's not that big a deal. You're damn right you should base the music for this. No, I, I'm firmly in, in number two camp, James. I mean, okay. I don't think it's as serious as, you know, January 6th or, you know, some of the other right. investigations he's involved in. But, you know, I do think that um, the deal with the National Enquirer and, you know, some of the, and, you know, uh, obviously, there were no charges ultimately brought for collusion with with the Russians, but just the manipulation in the 2016 campaign. I, I do think that those are you know threats to to democracy, and that you know this is a a, a worthwhile case to prosecute. Again, I don't know mm-hmm. that it's a crime of the, of the century, but I right. don't think it is so hyper technical that you know it, the Manhattan DA shouldn't have brought it. Yeah, I've never found an impressive way. You you know somebody could stop for. DUI. Just look at all the goddamn murders going on. Why are you fooling with me? I mean, it, it, they're not related. I mean, it, 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 the argument just doesn't hold water. All yeah. right? that, no, well, there's a lot of worse shit going on in the world, you know, and we shouldn't do that. But but people do, and there was considerable, um, I don't know, pushback, but skepticism among, you know, non-right-wing opinion leaders that this wasn't 
that big a deal and it actually kind of hurts and you, you, you don't share that view, I guess. I don't. I mean, you know, I think that there's, you know, consternation because this is people maybe see this as a little like Al Capone getting prosecuted for tax evasion when, you know, he's been responsible for the murder of dozens of people. And, you know, Trump's done much worse things than the, the, the Stormy Daniels uh, episode. But um, I, I, like you, you know, I, I don't think that the fact that you have committed more serious crimes should, you know, immunize you or insulate you from prosecution from, from, you know, less serious crimes. Well, uh, thank you, counselor. Uh, you know, I did love talking to you and um, I hope I never need your services, but if I do, <laughs> I'll call you. <laughs> Hey, James, I'm going to tell you something that we really share, a love for the Russert Orth family. Tim was a dear friend, and every day when I watch the news, I wish he were here. He has been proven irreplaceable. Maureen Orth, a dazzling journalist, and every bit as warm, uh, a great friend. And then there's their son, Luke Russert. He got his charm and, and, and smarts uh, from, from both parents. He got his looks from his mother. Uh, uh, honestly, I have to – he just published a book called Look For Me There. Uh, grieving uh, my father. Uh, Luke, shortly after your dad's sudden death in 2008, you joined NBC News as a young reporter. Now, you got the job because of your name, and then you earned it and became a superb journalist on Capitol Hill. Uh, I appreciate you pointing out that covering Congress is the best gig in town for reporters. It's a hell of a lot better than covering uh, the White House. And, and you suffered some cheap shots, but I think the problem was something different, not per se going to work for NBC, but something that our family went through in a different way. You jumped right in and you never grieved, really, the loss uh, of your dad. And reading the book was an emotional experience for me as I care so much about you three. But it seemed to me this was the essence of the book, reporting on your travels uh, around the world and finding yourself and better understanding your loss. Well, thank you so much, Al. It's a real honor to be on with you guys. And for you listeners out there that might not know this, this is a little reunion of sorts for 6020 <laughs> Sports, which had a great run on XM, Sirius hey. XM Radio for four years from 06 to 2010. Although that show would now be called 7030. So, right. although we are forever 6020. Yeah, go to 8040 soon <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, what you what you referenced there, Al, in your wonderful introduction is the premise of the book, which is called Look for Me There, Grieving My Father and Finding Myself. And ostensibly, it's a deeply internal journey that happened over many external physical places with the diversity of cultures uh, and whatnot. And what you hone in on is this question as to why I decided to leave NBC. There is this gilded path ahead of me. It seemed like there was uh, limitless options. And it comes down to when I turned 30, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit more clearly. I lost a close friend at 27. My father passed away at 58. But I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And by chance, I had a, a meeting with House Speaker John Boehner, who saw me in the hallway and he said, I want to talk to you in my office. And I thought he was upset about coverage. As you know, we get dressed down often in the media by the people we cover. And I walked into his office. He said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you invited me to your office. What, are you, I, what am I doing here? You invited me, right? 
And he said, no, what are you doing here on Capitol Hill? Because time's a flat circle here. You could be here till you're 50, 60, 70, 80, and not even know your life's gone by. Make sure that this is actually what you want to do. And make sure that this is something that is not too easy for you. You could do this job with your eyes closed. Is there another world out there for you? And that conversation ended up being a catalyst to listen to those voices in my head that said, hey, you know what? Maybe you got to go do something else. And when I left, it was only supposed to be about six months to a year of travel. I ended up learning through travel that I was doing two things. is I was looking for something which ultimately was a sort of acceptance by my late father to be my own person. But then I was trying to outrun something. And it's exactly what you honed in on. I was out trying to run, I was trying to outrun grief. Because if I ever really processed the grief, then I would have to understand that he was really gone. And that was something that I had avoided for many, many years. Well, the, I mean, the great, the fascinating conundrum was in a way on these, these, these journeys, you escaped the ghost of your dad. And in another, in finding yourself, you forged maybe even a closer bond. Yes. And what's so interesting is that in all those moments where I'm alone, it's the sort of power of aloneness, you're forced to sit in those uncomfortable, heavy thoughts. There's nowhere to escape necessarily in the sense of, oh, I have all this work to do. It's okay. I'm at the top of the mountain. The climb is over. I'm sitting here. I have a moment to breathe. I have a moment to think. I have a moment to process what's going in my mind, going through my mind. And it would constantly come back to dad, 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 dad. And that's when I knew that, oh gosh, I had never really fully grieved and what would that entail and what would that look like? And it took me some time to do that. Um, what I did learn through the end of it though is something that you know, Tom Brokaw has said a lot, which is that your parents are with you every day. You just have to look for the signs and you have to be willing to talk to them. Uh, but you have to get to that space because for me, at least, it was if I did that, then I would lose 22-year-old Luke and 22-year-old Luke was the last you know, kid, time a kid saw his dad who he loved so much. Luke, and also it's a love story between you and your mother. Uh, it brought you closer together. Uh, she was the adventuresome one in the family. She encouraged you. She encouraged your travel. And, and, you know, the real Tim Russert, if anything, is even better than the legend. His kindness and compassion, as my family knows, is the equal of his professional brilliance. But your mom, Maureen, is just as special. And, and you really discovered that more in the journey, including when she traveled with you. It's interesting. I had spent so much time traveling one-on-one -on -one with dad. We would go to final fours or spring training or political events. And it was the two of us. I was his little sidekick and I loved it. But I had never had a solo adventure with my mother. And I actually really didn't understand who my mom was independent of that role of mom. And we had like, a decent relationship growing up, but we certainly butted heads at times. She was more the disciplinarian in the family, the, the bad cop to my, my dad's good cop. But when I traveled with her for the first time, I understood that here was this woman at a very young age, 21 years old, graduated from Berkeley, did not want to become a nurse or a teacher and decided to join the Peace Corps because she wanted that sense of adventure. So she measured herself up against the world at a very young age and really s s thought that that's what gave her purpose in life and really was a wonderful experience that gave her a lot of direction and ignited a lot of passions in her. She still runs educational empowerment foundations in Colombia to this day. And I had never done that type of traveling. So it wasn't until I saw her out in the field and went with her to Latin America, saw how she interacted with local people, saw how, saw how she went and sought out these wonderful local experiences and was never risk adverse, always tenacious, always tough. 
I then realized why she was so hard on me growing up is that she wanted me to be like that. She wanted me to be like her and to, and to understand that you know, nothing is handed to you. And it was a really eye-opening experience and it ended up bringing us closer together. And I'm so fortunate I was able to have that. I wish it wasn't when I was 32, you know, 31, 32, 33, but I'm happy that it occurred Boy, nonetheless. I can imagine. You know, you're, you're a great storyteller. Uh, and, and this book, The Baseball Game in Hiroshima, uh, Escaping a Coup in Zimbabwe, for James, the Huey Lawn <laughs> Drive in Paraguay, and the people, the really interesting people. Do you stay in touch with any of these people you encountered, like that fascinating young French woman, Maggie, in New Zealand? It's interesting. For a while, she was never, she, she was not one to keep in touch. But for a while, I kept in touch with the surfer guy. I'd sent him a few messages. And then the guy who I, I met in Easter Island. Um, I want to look up, I, I, I'm desperate to find a young woman who is in my tour group. She was a school teacher in the UK. And she's actually the one who took the cover photo. Uh, she, I handed her my camera and she said, oh, go off and walk there near the ledge in the Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan. And I'll take a photo. It turned out to be the one used for the cover, which is getting a lot of publicity now. I can hold up what the cover looks like right there. And I just want to send her a copy and be like, hey, that, that shot you took actually ended up working out really well. So, you know, some people, they, they keep in touch with everyone who they meet along their travels. It's easier to do now with social media. I still follow some people on Instagram. It's nice to see them pop up every now and then. Uh, but I, I'm curious to see if they if they follow me if they if they know that they're a part of this book. I, I hope so. James, so I, you know, Luke and I go back and think about sixty twenty sports and the fun we had and just, just the different conversations. I, I, I guess one of the most memorable sporting events that I can remember was when we went to Baton Rouge for the LSU Florida game in two thousand seven, and I, you know they went for it five times on fourth down and made it and. Uh, the other one that sticks out in my mind is right after your dad died, you'd, you, we had Senator Bradley on the show, and he said, I'll stay on however long you want me to stay on. And I, I just never kind of forgot that, you know. Yeah, we had a lot of fun there. I mean, that the tribute show after my father passed away was Yogi Berra. It was Bill Bradley. It was Bill Russell. Um Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, it was just an incredible assortment of guests, and that was so kind of you to put together back then. And then the the, the game you're referencing, I believe, is the Tim Tebow game where LSU yeah. beat them in 07 yeah, on the right national title. And it was my first time in Tiger Stadium. <laughs> and the thing I remember, I remember a few things about that <laughs> night, which was fun, is one, how at some point everyone just parks alongside the highway because the traffic is so bad to get in. They just say, screw it. And they park their cars alongside the highway, just start walking on the shoulder to get to Tiger Stadium. And there were more people outside of the stadium than were in inside of the stadium. That's correct. And and I believe I asked you uh, about you know Louisiana and, and where taxpayer money went. And I said, is it really necessary for Mike the Tiger to have a $3 million cage or something? And, and you told me to shove it. So that was very <laughs> funny. <laughs> Mike the Tiger was a wonderful assortment of, uh, assortment of, of Louisiana taxpayer money. Yeah, I, 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 I just would say that I don't, I, I think the, uh, athletic department is, has enough money to pay for Mike's cage, but, I, I, but yeah, anyway, I'm, I like they, they get rent-free land from, uh, from 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 the state. But so, you know, obviously you you you've had this terrific career. Well, the story about Boehner, you know, makes me like Boehner a lot more than I, you know I did at the beginning. Of the show. I don't dislike him. He's actually. <laughs> 
he, he, um, he as James is getting, getting his headpiece on, I will say he has been probably the best Republican speaker in the last 25 years. Not a high bar, but he still achieved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of, I'm oh, sorry. It's just, sort of, you know, Bader prides himself much like uh, you guys did in that era is there's something to be said about civility and being nice to people, even the ones you disagree with. And it's interesting is you bring up his name now and people look fondly towards it. There's almost a nostalgia for Boehner uh, because it was sort of, he, he was presiding over when the shift happened to a much more uh, vitriolic, angry uh, political time, um, especially you know, which we live in now. It's just, just all memes and tearing people down, et cetera. It's, it's, it's tough sledding. It really is. Yeah. You know, I, I see Barry Jackson up uh, Every now and then, he's close to Mary and Maria Sino, and he was Boehner's kind of chief of staff. It was a, and, you know, uh, Barry's just wrought about the direction that, you know, Trump Republican Party is going, and I don't think um, my guess won't get better. But I, I just ask, you know, obviously the question that people do is, wow, you know, what a, you had a great career on the Capitol Hill Reporter. You know, you, you wrote this terrific book that's, you know, getting – you know, highly regarded, well-reviewed. Can you give us any sense of direction? What's, what are you thinking about your kind of next act in life? Or you, are you in that thought process right now? Or what direction are you thinking? And even more important, can you tell us, is maybe there's a, a girl somewhere along the line here? Or, 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 <laughs> I mean, not to be so personal. Yeah, you know, I'm going to interrupt to say, yeah. I've known yeah. Luke Russell for a long time, and he's never been without a girl, James. So that's <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> we, we know the answer to that. Know, we may Barry's not know not the identity. I, I, we, every, you know, over the years, we go to a lot of national games, and it's always, you know, I, I'd say one thing. Is a lot, a lot I think you, you, one, saying, you I, at I one time, the real one. You, you at one time volunteered to pay for a New Orleans wedding for me. So that <laughs> well. was, I don't know if you remember <laughs> yeah. saying that, but that was once thrown yeah. out there. But that's funny, James, because, you know, look at you, you're a grandfather now. And you're asking the same types of questions that my mom is asking is, where are the the grandbabies going to go? We're working on it. We're getting there. We're getting there. As far as what I want to do, I I enjoyed the storytelling space. It's a good one for me at this moment. Uh, The book was a real, it it, it was a long journey to write that. It took a lot of time. You know, you said to me early on in in my career, you said, because a few people had approached me about a book when I was much younger. And you gave me advice I always remembered, which was, you know, a book is expletive, 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 expletive hard. And uh, I, I, I would tend to agree with that after having to write one. It was a very long, arduous process. I don't know if I have another one of those in me right away. But that long-form storytelling, I really enjoy. And we have, a, I think, someone who we mutually like a lot is Wright Thompson, who does that show, True oh, South, and writes a lot about yeah, stuff. And, right. and I like what he, you know, if, if I could be in that type of space, I think that's a very comfortable one. Well, yeah, Wright would be a good guy to emulate, and he does a mm-hmm. lot of long-form stuff. And it, it, it's it's really good. And he's a, a, a very close close friend. I text him every now and then. He's a Mississippi Democrat. I'm I'm sure he's all in on Brandon Presley's campaign. You got to come down and see me in Bay St. Louis. And That's a place to be. I hear you have a yeah. good time down there. You, you, I, I got to go do it. And we got to get you. Do you, you do you go to the games anymore, James? You don't go to a lot of the LSU games anymore. You right? know. You know. Honestly, you know, I I, I could park. You know, probably in the stadium if I want to. I'm leg director's my best. But as you know, those things are a production. 
I don't yeah. care who you are. You it, and when you drive from New Orleans to go to an LSU game would take me nine hours. All right. Yeah. And it, the, yeah. the television is just so good. I, yeah. I, I, you know, obviously, I went to the Clemson game in the national championship, and right. Uh, but I agree with you. I think that now the TV value in HD TV, the way football is shot and framed, it's just it really is a theater sport. It really is now. You know, it's just it, it's it, it's much and, better at home. It really you, is. You, you notice something about the, the LSU games that people don't appreciate. They are. 60,000 people outside the stadium to have yeah. no intention of going to the game. None. Right. And they put the television <laughs> up and they're balling crawfish and jambalaya and just drinking. And that, that that's a, I don't know if that's true in other places, but let me only go to your sports and uh, where do you see the Bills next year? Are you optimistic or have issues coming up or what? My hope for the Bills is actually I was excited that Aaron Rodgers is in the division because I think the Bills would be much better served going into the playoffs as a wild card. I think that them, the last few years, they've tried to do this end-to-end, win the division, then go go on to win the conference and stay at 13, 14 wins all year. It's very hard. Get into the wild card have the odds stacked against you and just play free spirited football. And I think that'd do a, a good service for them. So I think they'll be okay. I don't, I actually don't think they'll win the division this year. I think Miami or the Jets will, I really do, but I think the bills will get in as a wild card and they'll make some noise. Wow. Well, that, 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 and do you have any like prediction in college football? Or, or, I, you know, come on. It's not Georgia. How about that? <laughs> I, so, this is going to sound like really stupid. I think Georgia's overrated. All right? No, well, come on, James. Two-time national champion right in a row. They beat TCU, I don't know, 60 to 4 or whatever it was. The two reasons I say that is, one, we were a good football team last year. I'm not going to kid, but, but I think Coach Kelly would be the first to say that we, we, we have come to be a great football team. It, they beat us a conference championship 20, 30 to 15. All right, two touchdowns. Actually, they scored on, you know, football. You know, ball bounces off a kid's helmet and they get a field goal back all the way. We actually outplayed them. If you look at the thing, and and Garrett Nussmeyer, I mean, we're stunning at quarterback. And, you know, Garrett Nussmeyer is the best backup in the country. And people forget everybody trashes the Big Ten and everybody trashes Ohio State. Georgia-Ohio State in the semifinal game was 42-41. Well, they almost had a beat, Ohio State did. Well, that's the yeah. first time I've heard yeah. of two-time yeah. national champions being overrated, but, you know, perhaps. Let me go back to Luke Russert and ask him this. You know, your dad was the gold standard in journalism, but he also was Mr. Buffalo, his hometown. You went back for a book right. signing, Luke. Did anybody show up? Yeah, it was just one or two. No, we, it was, we were very Tell lucky. Tell us about it. It's it. a place called the Black, place called the Blackthorn Pub, which my grandfather – the late, great, big Russ, World War II veteran, garbage man, truck driver, worked two jobs, 45 years. He was a member there. And the Blackthorns are these old kind of Irish Catholic guys that wear the black top hats under the St. Patrick's Day parade, and they march with the Irish walking suits, et cetera. So it was at his old uh, Blackthorn pub and club, and a few hundred, I'd say about 400 people came out. The, the, the line to sign books went over three hours. 
So he signed a bunch of books. We took a bunch of pictures. Some people sadly had to get out of line because it was just too long. And I've been trying to talk to them and reach out to them and make sure they all got books. But it was a wonderful celebration of the book and also Buffalo. And I had I got to hear so many stories, but the one that made me laugh the most was this guy had rented a cabin uh, off a of Lake Erie on the Canadian side. And the in the cabin was Tim Russert. 1971 that he had sketched in there with a knife. <laughs> so my, my father at age 21 had, had gotten into some mischief at this, at this cabin. It was sort of hidden behind a, a dresser. So that was very, a neat story, but it was a wonderful celebration of the book and Buffalo has been so good to me. And, you know, we had a, we had a great week last week. It went up to number one on Amazon. It was number one on Barnes and Noble for a few days and they actually ended up selling out of books. So it's a good problem to have. It's a little scary, but if you're listeners, if you bought a book and it wasn't the order wasn't processed right away, I can promise you it's going to happen this week. Uh, they got the presses up and running, so we're we're, we're and if you haven't away. bought a book, go to it right now. Go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and get Luke Russert's uh, book. Uh, you know immediately. Uh, you know, I remember you told me years ago one of the things that you considered was maybe going back to Buffalo, upstate New York, and running for political office. Have you ruled that out? Is that still a possibility? <laughs> yeah. I- I think I've ruled that out. I mean, one of the things that you learn when you cover Congress is it is blood sport. And the, yeah, and it's only gotten worse. I don't think it's going to get better. I think one of the things we don't talk about enough in the United States is that because it has gotten so bad, the quality of the candidates on both sides has really gone down. Thankfully, there's still a few gems in there that, who come through with uh, with with good records. But I think a lot of people, and this is why you see, I think, so many of the older politicians hang on. It's that the ones coming up the pipeline, it's just, it's it's not always the best and the brightest because so many people are just so turned off. And that's sad. And I think that's not good for a democracy. It's not good for civic participation because there are the forces out there that want you to be so... Uh, just so over it that you don't pay attention anymore. And that's intentional a lot of the time. And that's not good. And, and my hope is that we get to a place where people realize how important it is to participate uh, civically. I mean, that was one of the things my father was, a, was very patriotic about, was the participation in, in defense of democracy, that we are all in this as uh, citizens here, and we have to do what's best for the country. And we are so very far away from that. Look, I first met you when you were two days old. Uh, it was in the hospital. I remember your dad pointing out all of your great attributes at, 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 at 48 hours. Uh, and his pride only grew over the years. And I think today, looking down on you, he's probably prouder than ever. But the, the, the other thing about him is, is he reached out to others. I know when my son was badly injured, there was no one there more than Tim Russert. So I guess what I want to say is just to you and Maureen, thank you for sharing him uh, with all of us uh, because uh, he was, uh, I've never known anyone more special. Well, you're so kind to say that, Alan. And as it was printed on his mask card, you know, there's no better exercise through the human heart than bending down to pick somebody else up. And he really truly believed that. And it's this past weekend in Buffalo. There were so many of those types of stories. People had said, you know, your father wouldn't know me from Adam. And he heard that my mom was in the hospital through the grapevine in South Buffalo and called up and sent us, you know, flowers and whatnot. And I have so many of those stories and they, they wore my heart every oh. single time. So thank you so much for that. That's great. James. Oh, well, no, I mean, I, I really, it was so touching to have you on the show. And I was so, you know, writing a book like that and exposing yourself uh, and your feelings and 
this era is, you know, you you, you got to figure that you might get some ridicule when you create, you, you did not injustifiably because you wrote a good book. And uh, I, I just think that you continue to have something to say and I hope you stay, you know, come back and be a little bit in the public sphere. I, I totally agree with you. I think Georgia is overrated. But <laughs> I, I think that, that, I think it's good that you're thinking about more storytelling because the more storytellers we have, the better we're all going to be. Well, so, I appreciate uh, Mark, that, James. Thank you so much. It's been, and you and you guys have been so supportive of me for such a long time, and I I can't thank you enough. And and you guys are great dads too. You have great <laughs> kids. You have great kids. Great kids. Uh, I think Murray's gonna see you tonight. So I ask Good. about. Good. I look ask forward about to Liam. Him. Liam, Irish Liam. I want to tell everybody out there, if you haven't already, I want you to get Luke Russert. Look for me there, Grieving My Father and Finding Myself. you got to get You owe it to yourself. It's a fabulous book. Luke Russert, we all are as, you know, we just, uh, you know, revel in uh, everything you are. So thank you so much for joining us. Okay, now for the outrage of the week. James, I'm going to postpone my outrage about Republican efforts to sabotage voting, and we'll start to take that up next week. Instead, I want to pay tribute to one of, the, one of America's greatest citizens, Newton Minow, who passed away last weekend at 97. He was, is the most notable and prescient FCC chairman in history, extolling the potential of television in 1961, and decrying its entertainment fair as a, quote, vast wasteland, end quote. Over the next 60 years, no one contributed more to the advancement of communications, the public dialogue, and public television than Newt Minow. In his 30s, he was a confidant of John F. Kennedy. In his 70s, he was a mentor of Barack Obama. He and his close friend Abner Mikvah were the liberal lions of the Chicago legal and political world for decades. I have never known a better public servant. He and his equally admirable wife, Joe, had three extraordinary daughters. The one I know the best is Martha, the former dean of the Harvard Law School and now the chair of the MacArthur Foundation. And on a personal note, he was the hero uh, for my wife, Judy Woodruff, her biggest supporter and professional inspiration. She was blessed to have dinner with Newt a week before, and he was as sharp and wise and engaging as ever. A remarkable life for a remarkable American. Wow. At MacArthur Foundation, those sons of bitches give out million-dollar gifts for geniuses. I want them to give me a million. Shit. Well, let's talk, I'll yeah. talk to Martha about us, James. So, so, so James wants his cut, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so every group, somebody is profoundly embarrassing a group. So some Jewish person does something really stupid and, and, you know, oh, God, or, you know, an Italian does something stupid or a black person does something stupid. People within the group go, oh, man, that person's a fucking embarrassment. Well, I'm a Southern college football fan and there is no more embarrassing person in the world to my culture than Tommy Tuberville. He is the colossally ignorant jerk who doesn't even know, is a United States senator, doesn't even know the three branches of government. And yesterday after Trump was found liable by 
a jury. He says it wants to make me vote for him twice. I, I, I just, when you think somebody can't be any dumber or, or any worse of a representative of the white Southern male college football fan, then Tommy Tuberville just exceeds your fucking expectations every time. So, Tommy, just shut up because you're embarrassing people like me and you fit the stereotype. I hate to, he's, he, that guy is like, and, and he's the, the perfect storm because he's a giant fool and doesn't even realize it. I mean, a colossal fool. It's, 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 it's in, in, in addition to that, he's got really serious ethics problems, but that would surprise no one. No. He sure does. You, you touched on something that I, I, I want to go a little bit. Uh, I think most people know the producer of our show. He is uh, famously a Brit and a, a dedicated and devoted anti-monarchist. And I, I didn't pay much attention to it, but I did, and I looked at some of the visuals. This thing is on the last leg, all right? I, I mean, I'm sorry. That guy looked ridiculous, 76 years old, with a big old crown on top of his head and... I, 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 they're not even powerful enough to get mad at anymore. And you weren't and taken, I, I suspect, I, I, James, by the just, by the new queen. Yeah, I, I, I actually, <laughs> like, I, I watched the video of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953, and you, you had a sense that it was, what they try to do is exude power in Pax Britannica and whatever shit don't exist anymore anyway. But But he just looked, he, he didn't look intimidated. He, you kind of, I don't know. I, I kind of had some sympathy for him. And what's really amazing about modern Britain, and of course my family is famously Irish, and you know, of course, hate the, you know, traditionally hate the Brits for for good reason. But I, I now feel sorry for them. They, they, they would, if they should wish they had anything approaching the economy in Ireland, and and he just looks. Yeah, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think, you know, he loved horses so much he married one. Uh, Ooh. But, <laughs> well, okay. I, but, but I mean, it, 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 I didn't, it, it didn't like me saying, look at this shit, they're spending all this money and, you know, this is so out of touch with where the world. Hey, I, I didn't have, my feeling was, shit, it looks silly. You know, I, and I, I think that was a lot of people. I, I think yeah. this thing. I'm no it, fan of the monarchy. I just, I do give him credit for being anti-plastics, but I think I, you're overall. Yeah, I think you're overall. Uh, yeah, I think he was a, a, yeah. a good environmental record. He, he actually is a kind of critique of modern architecture, which I believe kind yeah. of a reasonable thing to do. But I'm just saying, I doesn't have. If he were coming to New Orleans and I had to walk three blocks and somebody said, I can get you to front, you can shake hands with the king. I don't know, man. It's too hot out there. Okay. Here's our favorite segment. One of our favorite segments, James. Questions, Gus. They are so good. We started with Bob in Tampa, Florida. Uh, and he says you were with President Clinton when you made a political comeback and was dubbed the comeback kid in 1992. Ron DeSantis has had a horrible few weeks and is being written off as dead. Politically, if DeSantis were a political presidential stock, would you be a buyer or a seller? And that's, you know, 
let's start with a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I cannot think of two people in politics that are stylistically more unlike than Bill Clinton and Ron DeSantis. All right? I'm, I mean, I, I was there in the very qualities that brought Bill Clinton kind of back from the, I don't know, dead or almost dead, you know, we're, we're, we're just the ability to relate to people in a, in, in, in a stunning way and to do everything. And DeSantis, for whatever reason, I'm sure he has some kind of medical condition that he, he, he just can't relate to people. So he, he doesn't have that skill set. The, the analogy that you want to make. Uh, can he come back? Um, you know, yeah. I mean, he's not he's not dead yet. And, a lot, you know, and his sort of these cultural antics and stunts that he pulls, are, you know, sufficiently popular with, with the Republican base. And uh, I... I, I would be reluctant to say he can't come back, but he, it's certainly not going to come back in any kind of way that, that Bill Clinton was able to come. Well, I think the only way he comes back is if Donald Trump craters. And yes. if Donald Trump craters, yes. uh, then you say, okay, if not Ron DeSantis, who? There's not a lot of great choices, but that that's yeah. his that's his one chance. But I share your views about him. He just is simply not a very attractive uh, personality, and he ain't going to change that. Yeah, the donors and people have, like, caught on to it. And the other thing is, sometimes something happens, and it seems ridiculous, and it's just politically damaged. And, and the pudding, eating pudding with his fingers. Uh, you know, one of my favorite people cover this, is I don't know, is Margaret Hartman at New York Magazine. And she immediately said, this is the end of DeSantis. And I, I read the headline, and I said, oh, come on. Then I kind of read the story, and I said, shit, she might be right. I mean, it, and it, you know, of course, Trump, Trump seized on it right away. But I, I think that, you know, a little bit, when something happens to somebody, it becomes kind of defining. And I, I think he that did serious damage to him. Yeah. It seems well, stupid, but it did. We will see. Kristen in Orlando, Florida says that 70 or 80% of Americans support red flag laws on guns or effective background checks for gun, gun ownership, yet the Republican Party refuses to accept any of these measures. They may be softening a little bit in Texas, just a teeny bit maybe, but probably will come back. But is this simply about, um, uh, Kristen asked, the NRA, or do you think on some level that uh, they want their supporters to be heavily armed, including assault weapons? Yeah, Kristen, it's the NRA, but it's the rank and file. And there are other gun groups involved, too. There is no every place in America, uh, background checks, red flag laws, uh, uh, banning uh, assault weapons, uh, polls well. But what they do is they reach their people. They make for, for, for their people, the, the opponents of these laws, it is the top issue. And for the other people, the 70 or 80 percent that you allude to, it's, you know, maybe their fourth or their seventh or their tenth uh, most important issue. And that intensity factor sadly has not gone away. And I'm not sure. I don't think Republicans are going to change much. So, uh, uh, you know, there's a saying, and I think it applies to you, you can't unring a bell. All right, can, can God never tire a point? Now, to people, assault weapons were banned in the United States from 1994 to 2004. I'm sorry, they were. And, and then we stupidly, and I mean really stupidly, did away with the assault weapons ban. And no one thought that the gun sales are AR-15, and, and they have exploded. 
and and everybody feels the same. There's this escalation that says, well, if everybody else has one, then I got to have one. And they're just, that they're prevalent. They're everywhere. And what, in this, the first thing where you, you, you have some kind of conflict dispute or you have a mental problem. Look, I think if you ran the thread through all of these mass shooters and this guy too, they're all, none of them get laid. I, I'm sorry. It sounds kind of unsophisticated in, 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 a, in a locker room analogy to make about a serious problem. But I bet you that if, if you put what's a constant in all of these people that they're what they call incels and they're just mad because they, they, no one wants to have sex with them. I, I, I don't know how you, how you solve that problem, you know, but that, that's, that's a big, and this guy was crazy and, you know, and the fact that he, if, if they wouldn't have had AR-15s, okay, maybe he would have been pissed off and he'd have had a, a, a Smith & Wesson and started shooting people. He's not going to kill nearly as many people as he can with one of these things. James Carville, a and, political maestro, an historical buff, and now sexologist. That's right. I think that that's my own, not my own research <laughs> is that, that a lot of these people are just mad because they don't, they can't have sex with anybody. Yeah. They really James, I want to combine to Dan in Los Angeles, who says uh, that you say voting for no labels would be the easiest way for Trump uh, to get back in the White House. Uh, but uh, he said, what can we do about no labels? Uh, and would a no labels candidate, even given that ABC poll and everything, have a chance at winning? And then kind of as a follow-up, James, you can address both JP and Virginia Beach uh, says, okay, if you don't like Biden, who give me one or two candidates who would be a strong Democratic candidate? So why don't you take no labels first and then go to the alternative? Well, the only thing, you know, so let's go with a little history. Ralph Nader clearly cost Al Gore Florida, which clearly cost Al Gore the election. Uh, 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 un known or underappreciated thing is Jill Stein got more votes than Hillary lost by in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. You know, that that's evident. And that's the kind of history. And so no labels would take, it's kind of putting out, look, we don't have any labels. We don't like Trump. We don't like the squad. I don't know what the fuck they're saying. And it's, it's first of all, it's a giant money-making scam. Secondly, uh, it, it, it's trying to get into contested states where all it can do if it gets on a ballot in Arizona is, is take votes away from the Democrat. And that's all it is. And what you need to do, if you, you know people that are donating to it, I had a friend of mine, a wealthy guy, Hollywood guy, asked me if I thought he should give money to no labels. And I said, if you give those freaking people a nickel, I'll never speak to you again for the rest of your life. And if you don't call all your friends and tell them I'll never speak to you. Okay, quickly, James, give us one or two candidates who'd be better than Biden. Really quickly. Gretchen Whitman, Mitch, Mitch Landrew, Gina Romalto, uh, Jared Polis, Raphael Warnock. I, 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 they're everywhere. Wes Moore, Josh Shapiro, Andy Brashear. Our next question is from Tim in Bartlett, Illinois. So could you please talk about the demographics and voter aging death rates that may impact both political parties? And will gerrymandering continue to, to uh, uh, be a huge factor in, uh, in making it very hard for Democrats to break through in 2024? 
Um, Tim, let me tell you something. Uh, yeah, gerrymandering is going to affect some House races. They're probably going to pick maybe Democrats or three or four seats. They'll have a net loss just because of that. But I'll tell you what worries me the most and something that this show is going to start to focus on very soon, and that is absolute voting suppression. State after state after state that has a Republican control, Texas and North Carolina and Georgia and Ohio, uh, are engaged in massive voting suppression efforts. It's Jim Crow 3.0 maybe, aimed primarily at voters of color but also young voters. And what they realize is if it's a really fair election, oftentimes they're going to lose. And so they're going to make sure they tilt the tilt the, um, tilt the balance. And uh, I think James and I will start talking about that a lot. A, a, a very good question. And uh, of course, 100% right. But the voter suppression stuff is an enormous problem. After the this cycle of the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, Cleta Mitchell was, you know, very highly influential right wing I don't know, lawyer, agitator, I don't know what you call her, said, it's unbelievable. These college kids just roll out of bed and go vote. Well, why shouldn't they? I'll roll out of bed. All my life, I've rolled out of bed. And if I vote in New Orleans, I got to walk a block and a half to the fire station. What's wrong with that? I don't understand what they're talking about. Of course, we understand what they're talking about. They can't win elections unless they're suppressed. Now, the demographic question, I, and I think some good quant or, or, or mathematician or, or uh, actuarial guy could come up and, on average, how many Republicans die every week and how many eighteen, how many people turn 18? And I, I, I think that has probably been done. And I suspect, I, I don't know, but I heavily suspect that there are more people turning 18 that are going to vote Democratic. And, you know, and there's a lot of Republic, Re, Republicans who are dying. And they lost an uh, inordinate amount of people to, to COVID, to, to the pandemic, because of the stupidity of not getting vaccines or wearing masks. And that, that, that's, been, that, that's been proven and a pretty big number. So, yes, and, and they know this is happening right in front of them. And they know the only thing they can do is voter suppression, and they better watch out. They, they could lose this race in Texas. I'm just, I, I promise you. I, I think that Colin, you know, of course, we're big fans of his, is in many ways a better statewide campaign candidate than O'Rourke was. And Cruz is significantly less popular today than he was, uh, you know, in 2000. 18. I agree with you totally on Cowan. I'm not sure if I wish that other congressman had jumped in or not. He did jump in, and I kind of wish he hadn't. But uh, in any event, I think Cowan will win, and he'll be a strong candidate. I think, yeah, I, I, I do think Cowan will win. And I, I mean, I hear reports from Texas that people are very yeah. enthusiastic about him. And, uh, you know, man, I'm, I don't know primary, but he'll win that primary. James Ryan in Robeson County, North Carolina, says that. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who is a real right winger, is really putting in lots of work in rural areas. The local Democratic Party is virtually non-existent. What can North Carolina do? Because I have little, legitimately not heard of the Democratic candidate in my areas. Wow. Well, I'm, you've obviously went to university in North Carolina and you study much closer. You're to talking it. about me, James? Uh, I went I to do. Wake Forest. Yes. Right. Okay. I'm. Oh, I see. I, I, I see. Okay. I kind of 
sorry that you have a, a, a greater interest, but I, you know, my understanding is we do have a that guy is really nuts. Mark Robinson. I mean, the, the lieutenant yeah. governor. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, he's out there, even in, in, in out there. But uh, I, I hope that the Democrats are, are in. You know, I'm, the candidate we have is the current attorney general. He seems like he's pretty, pretty on his toes kind of person. I, but I, the fact that that county, you know, that in, in Robinson County, right out of Charlotte. Yeah, it's down there. I, it's a swing county, right kind of in the in the uh, yeah. right. It, it, right, it's a very right. But but the fact that you haven't heard uh, what's going on is, is I, I I think significant. And uh, I, I will make some noise that we got to, you know, we, we got to get in places like this and be heard. But Other than the presidential race and maybe control the Senate together, there is no more important race than that North Carolina governor's race in 2024. Because what's the Democrats screwed it up and they and they didn't they wrote off North Carolina national Democrats. Uh, DNC in the White House, and they lost not only a Senate seat, but they lost the Supreme Court down there. So the Republicans control the legislature. They control the Supreme Court. If they control the executive, they're going to do a lot of damage in the next two years. If they get the governorship too, it's, it's you know, Katie, whoever you want, bar the door. It'll be an absolute, I mean, they will try to turn North Carolina into Alabama. Uh, so uh, it's a state that Democrats can win, and that, that, that gubernatorial candidate, I think it's Josh Stein, is that right, James, uh, the AG, he, he, he should beat Mark Robinson, who will, get a, who will be primary but is likely to win. And it's a critical race. And national Democrats, the DNC and the White House, you got to put North Carolina on the radar screen of all the states that you lost in 2020. That really is the only one where you have a reasonable chance of, of winning next time uh, in a normal race. You, you can't ignore North Carolina. You can't, and, and I suspect that the, the previous question about the, the demographics, you know, North Carolina, I would think of top of my head, is a prime example of like a state where the Republicans are, 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 are dying and more diverse and young. Not, you know, not just we think of a lot of colleges there, but that you, that's not who, who really young people are. And uh, yes, I, 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 I think, you know, I think you're right. And, you know, we got to get in there and compete. It, it's a lot of people. It's a, it's a huge, I mean, 14 electoral votes or something like that. And I think it's actually it's 15 significant or 16. State. Yeah. It's yeah, 15. it is. Okay, but... whatever. But it's a lot. But it's a, it's, it is a significant state that it, it is very, you know, very would be very critical if we could get it to join the, the Democratic coalition. And with, with hard work, I think we can do it. But we got to get, I'm, I'm a, Sound, thank you for sounding the alarm. We got to get some help down there to Robinson County and test it. Yeah, no it. question. John in Boston, Massachusetts asked a really good question. Why didn't the Democrats pass a debt ceiling extension during the lame duck session? It was obviously Republican obstruction was coming. They knew that. Uh, they wanted to. It the calendar was so tight, they had so many other must-pass things uh, that, frankly, and the Republicans in the Senate were going to be obstructionists, and they just couldn't do it, and they regretted it. Yeah, this is uh, you know, it it, it always kind of works itself out. But I gotta tell you, I, there's some chance it could this this whole thing could blow up. I, I don't know. I can't tell you if the chance of twenty five or two or sixty or whatever it is. But but 
it's going to take some, you know, some skill here. And I, I, I'm not sure how this movie ends. I'm really not. And frightening is really It sure is. I'm scared you know, to death. People are scared. I, I agree. You know, and, and you don't hear, uh, you know, it's all going to be fine. It's just bullshit. You know, they'll resolve these things right at the end. Maybe that's the case, but I, I, I wish... Yeah, I as Luke Russell reminded us, John Boehner is not there anymore, and uh, uh, these people are no John Boehners. Tressa in Minnesota. Now, Tressa, next time you better tell us where in Minnesota you're from, because that's a pretty big state, but you asked such a good question. You say, Mississippi is 36.9% black and 58% white, yet Mississippi is solid red. What's the deal? Are black voters not actually voting? Are they voting Republican or what? So I, I, it might be a little higher than that, but that doesn't matter. It's, it, it is by percentage the, the blackest state in the United States. And black turnout, black share constantly underperforms uh, black turnout. But to understand this about Mississippi is that uh, Jim Hood, Mike Espy, they, they lost by five or six points. It, it, it's not Tennessee. It, and, you know, I think they're really working. Uh, Hood and Benny Thompson didn't get along. I don't know. You know, I'm worried about black turnout everywhere. And I don't know why it would be better in Mississippi than it is anywhere else. But, you know, Franica trying to help. And uh, it, it, it's a state that Democrats can win, have a better chance to win statewide elections than they think. It just, when people hear Mississippi, they shut down. Oh, I never win. It's backwards. It's it's you know all of that. Some of varying degrees. All that all that's true, but it's a lot closer to being Democratic than, than Alabama, or Tennessee, or, or, or you know Kentucky is. And I, I continue to believe that we got a real shot at the, the governor's race down there. And you just have to know how corrupt these Mississippi Republicans are. It's just staggering. So. Uh, you, you, your point is well taken, and it's a very intelligent question. Sure is, and I, 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 I want to say right up front, my son's working down there in the, in the, for the Democratic candidate, Brandon Presley, in Mississippi, so I don't have any detachment at all, but I think James has made some really good points. There, 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 there are two, uh, I want to cite two um, uh, uh, pieces of journalism. David Firestone in the New York Times wrote a good piece about the uh, possibility that Democrats really could win in Mississippi, so if you have any doubts, read that piece. But the other one is Mississippi Today, this little digital site that only began seven or eight years ago. Uh, Jim Barksdale gave him some money. Andy Lack of NBC News is, came down there to be, I guess, the chair of it. A guy named Adam Gatchineau, I think I'm pronouncing the name correctly, is a wonderful young editor. And this woman, Anna Wolf, they won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for they were the ones that revealed the $77 million of welfare money for poor people that the, the people, the governing Republicans took and handed out to supporters and contributors, including Brett Favre, uh, for $5 million for a volleyball court uh, at his alma mater. It was a terrible thing. And thank I, I just am so glad Mississippi Today was recognized because they deserve it. It's a great place. And I would tell our readers out there, too, not only get the David Firestone piece, but start reading Mississippi Today. Maybe even contribute to them because they're, they're, they're making a difference down there, James. 
They, they are, and, and, and you know, obviously, I spend a lot of time in Mississippi because of my place in Bay St. Louis, which is just over the Louisiana line. And you're right, this the Sun Herald, which is the you know Biloxi Gulfport papers, you know, doesn't have very much. I mean, it's like a new struggling the Clarence Ledger, the, the you know state capital newspaper struggles. I don't even think the Commercial Appeal is doing that well in Memphis in covering this. And it's not typical in Mississippi today is far and away the best coverage of, of state government and state politics in Mississippi that day is. And you, you're very credible to point them out. And, uh, you know, we'll see. But I, 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 I do know that we're going to be competitive. And he had a, compared to other states, his fundraising quarter was better than we've ever had anybody in, in, in Mississippi. And it, it, I promise you it's going to be a close election. I think Brandon can win the thing. I know that's my job number one between 9, what, nine November is, is helping yep. down there. So uh, great question, that, great observation. That candidate James alludes to is, Bra- really good question is Brandon Presley. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty good name in the state of Mississippi, I think. Um, and also out there, start reading Mississippi Today. And then if you like it as much as I do, make a contribution to them. It's a terrific nonprofit that's doing, as James said, great, great work down there. So thank you. Keep those letters coming. We love those questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get to everyone, but if we didn't, we'll try to get to them next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. And don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Hold On Bags, in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.